The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwith Theogene. Uh, and I'm Charlotte Hancock. And I was just realizing, Edwith, in that intro, uh, we got to finally swap you out for Brent um, in the promotional uh, the promotional startup because the the Generation Progress Takeover says, uh, has got Brent's voice and my voice. And now it's just, just you and me, kid. <laughs> Yeah, but I feel like Brent does a good job um, of it. He'll, Brent he'll is live no, on in our in our memories. <laughs> yes, Brent J. Cohen is. Oh God, I sorry, was I was gonna say he left you a different job. That's that's we're talking about him. Like it's a little more serious than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So how's it going, Charlotte? I'm good. I'm sorry. I totally messed up our flow, our intro flow. I'll let you get back to it. I just. Uh, <laughs> You did not mess it up. The banter is always welcome, um, especially with our audience and everyone. So, uh, but yeah, welcome to the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, So today we're going to be having a really great conversation and talking to some really awesome experts about taking action for climate. So from October 31st to November 16th, world leaders, climate policy experts, and advocates gathered in Glasgow, Scotland for the 26th. United Nations Climate Change Conference to confront the global threat that the climate crisis presents and continue to work to chart a path forward. Very big things. Um, With so many priorities and perspectives represented at one event, there were a lot of differing thoughts presented on the best way to confront this problem. And some activists, particularly young activists, were vocal in their belief that the conference's approach to addressing the climate crisis is insufficient and does not match the scope and urgency of the issue. Meanwhile, in the United States, progress has been made on both bipartisan, on both the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better Act, um, which each contains provisions to combat the climate crisis. The infrastructure bill was signed into law by President Biden on Monday, and Congress is slated to pass the Build Back Better Act in the coming weeks. So to talk more with us about COP26, and what comes next in the movement to end the climate crisis, we're joined by two of our colleagues on CAP's energy and environment advocacy team. Um, first of which, we have Hannah Malice, the Deputy Director of Energy and Environment Advocacy at the Center for American Progress. Welcome, Hannah. Hi, thank you so much. Excited to be here. Yeah, excited to have you. We always work together, um, but really don't have a time to chat. So this is awesome that we get to do it on the podcast. Um, 
And then we would like to also welcome Chris Chung, the campaign manager of the State House to the White House Initiative at the Center for American Progress. Hi, Chris. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. Um, so thank you both for joining us. We have a lot to kind of, I guess, cover when it comes to climate. And Charlotte and I are going to just dig right in. So Hannah, to get us started, um, can you tell us a little bit about your work with CAP Energy and Environment Team and how you came to this work? Sure. So uh, yes, on the Energy and Environment Team's advocacy sub-team, I guess, uh, we work with our policy experts and really help them um, get their messaging out, um, whether it be to lawmakers, policymakers, and also like the public. Um, and so really just translating their ideas uh, into, into content. Um, and so I also work on uh, our storytelling project, which is really exciting. Uh, we find folks who are impacted by the climate crisis or pollution or have a really cool clean energy job. Uh, and we interview them and help them write op-eds or make videos about their stories uh, to really spread the word about how immediate uh, the climate crisis is. Um, and then how I got to this job, um, I actually, I, I didn't have much of an interest in the environment uh, when I was young uh, or younger, I guess. Uh, and I studied peace studies uh, in college, like conflict resolution uh, and, and conflict. Uh, but then my last semester of college, I ended up taking a class on climate change kind of on a whim. And it really opened my eyes to how the climate crisis impacts a ton of the issues that I care about. And so um, that is how I ended up in the movement. Nice. Thank you for sharing your story. And the storytelling work that you do is really powerful and important because everyone has a climate story. Um, and sometimes it takes a little nudge for us to actually bring that up. Um, so Chris, can you tell us like, uh, you're fairly new to CAP as well, but what is the state, to, state house to the White House initiative and how did you get involved in this campaign and this work? Yeah, so similarly to Hannah, I didn't have much of a focus on climate policy work before I came to the center. But now, and my work previous uh, to being here was in the Indiana State Legislature. So I've always been interested in public policy and real world solutions. As we all know, the climate crisis threatens the economy and lives and the planet, and it touches every aspect. So it just felt like the right place to be in the right moment for our generation in order to fight some of these challenges that are going to be ahead for us. So before, like I said, I was in Indiana at the state policy level, and the State House to the White House initiative is really exciting because even though CAP is a DC-centered think tank, we it's really important to make sure that we're getting out into individual state and local governments and seeing the great work that governors are doing, that state senators are doing, that mayors are doing in their communities. And I think that's such a great way uh, for younger folks to get involved and to rise up to uh, change our government for the better and change the course of humanity for the better. So I'm excited about the work that the center can do and excited about the work that Generation Progress is doing also. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Um, and I think that's really phenomenal work too. So much is really happening at the state and local level that can influence um, what happens at the federal level and also worldwide. So it's great that you're in this position to draw those connections and facilitate um, and support some change. So 
uh, a big thing that we talked about at the beginning of this session um, was COP26. So Hannah, you just got back from Glasgow, which is exciting, where you participated in COP26. Um, tell us what happened. Tell us a little bit about your experience and what was the goal of the conference and who participated in this year. What's the tea? Oh, and also just like for people who are like, what is COP26? You know, uh, give us, give folks a little, a little primer. I want to, I want to hear it all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, full transparency. I was one of those people that was saying, uh, what is COP26? Um, just a few months ago. So I am happy to share uh, what I've learned. Um, yes, I just got back from week two of the summit. It's a two week long event. Um, and so it's the basically the United Nations Climate Conference. Uh, COP stands for Conference of Parties. And so essentially all the countries who signed on to the Paris Climate Agreement back in 2016, uh, this is a chance for them to convene and discuss what needs to be done to meet the Paris Climate Agreement goals. Um, and also a chance to announce new pledges, new plans for how countries are going to reach their individual goals for emission reductions. Um, and so you have the negotiations happening at one part of the, it's like this, it was this massive event venue. Uh, so you had the negotiations between the countries happening and then outside the negotiations, there uh, was also uh, civil society representatives from the private sector, public sector, um, and also activists and, uh, and protesters outside of the negotiations as well. Excellent. So it's a, I mean, it's a, a recognition, I think, um, the way you describe it, of the fact that addressing the climate crisis is going to take uh, global action um, and global cooperation. It's not something that can just be accomplished on a country by country basis, but the U.S. can for sure do its part and be a leader. So um, I think we're about to head to a commercial break in just a few minutes here. But when we get back, Hannah, I want to hear more about um, what was accomplished um, in Glasgow go at COP26 um, and, uh, you know, how we're going to be partnering with other countries to address the climate crisis um, and dig a little bit deeper on that. Um, Y'all are listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show, and we will be right back in just a few minutes uh, after this commercial break. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm your other co-host today, Edward Theogene. And uh, I want to say a special welcome back to our guests, Hannah Mallis um, from the Center for American Progress's um, Energy and Environment team, and then also to Chris Chung, um, who's joining us from the State House to the White House Initiative at the Center for American Progress. Uh, welcome back to you both. Um, and before the commercial break, we were talking about um, how the how countries around the world can come together to combat um, climate change um, and how folks um, and country leadership um, are talking to each other about doing that. Hannah just got back from um, COP26 in Glasgow, um, essentially the United Nations of climate change. And I'm going to be paraphrasing Hannah in describing it that way, um, but Hannah can do it much better than I can. <laughs> um, and Hannah, I just wanted to pick back up on that thread. What were some of your major takeaways uh, from the conference, how are countries planning to um, work collaboratively or not, you know, uh, for that matter, to, to fix the climate crisis? Yeah, thanks, Charlotte. 
Um, so I can give like the top lines of, you know, what we're getting from the final agreement. Um, but then I would love to just mention a few of the things that I'm, I'm actually really excited about that, that came out of COP. Um, so under the Paris Agreement, countries are required to submit new carbon reduction pledges to the UN every five years. And so this is actually the first time since the Paris Agreement was signed that countries had to do this. Um, because the conference was canceled last year because of COVID and everything. So um, this was a pretty big moment. Uh, and the initial pledges that we saw in Paris uh, in 2016 put the world on the path to warm 2.7 degrees by the year 2100. Um, and so after Glasgow, uh, the planet, you know, if everything goes according to plan, all of these pledges and commitments, you know, countries follow through, uh, the planet will warm uh, 2.4 degrees in that same amount of time. So it's progress, uh, 2.4 degrees is better than 2.7, uh, but it's really not enough. Uh, we need to cap warming at 1.5 degrees uh, to avoid like the absolute worst impacts of the climate crisis. Um, but again, there are some really exciting outcomes. Um, so for example, over 100 countries, including the US, pledged to cut global methane emissions by 30% by the year 2030. And so this is a huge announcement because methane is like an extremely potent greenhouse gas. It actually accelerates warming more than carbon emissions. And so uh, cutting methane will do like a really great things uh, to, to decrease global warming. Um, there were also a lot of really interesting conversations about nature-based solutions to the climate crisis. Um, and countries representing 90% of global forest cover actually pledged to reduce deforestation to zero. So no more deforestation by the year 2030. Um, and so this is not only great for combating climate change, but it's also great for preserving natural spaces and protecting endangered species and that kind of thing. Um, so that was a really exciting announcement. Um, and finally, last thing I'll, I'll mention, um, there were moves to decarbonize the global economy. So 20 countries, including the US and Canada, uh, committed to stop public financing for fossil fuel projects abroad by the end of next year. So a pretty quick timeline on that, um, which is really needed. Um, and then in addition, uh, 450 financial institutions committed to decarbonizing their collective portfolios. Uh, we're talking about like $130 trillion worth of assets. Um, so totally decarbonizing those by 2050. And that will be done by divesting from fossil fuel projects and investing in clean energy. So some exciting things, but way more needs to be done and it needs to be done faster. Super exciting. And, you know, pardon my ignorance on this. I feel like sometimes when Edwin and I have these conversations, I'm super well, uh, super up to date on um, where the space is and able to have like a really informed back and forth conversation. But I feel like for some of the things that you picked um, through on what was decided um, at COP, uh, I didn't even know that that was something that could be decided at COP. So um, if I could just uh, dig in a little bit more to make sure I'm understanding correctly, did you say uh, attendees agreed to no more deforestation by 2030 is that like all how does that work that's like does that mean there is no more deforestation across the entire planet by the year 2030 okay that is a great clarifying question <laughs> well we have the final text of I, I think it's referred to as like the glasgow climate pact and okay. so that is the thing that everyone signs on to um and so there there's a lot of information in that text the outcomes that I said were really exciting were actually announcements that are separate from the text. 
So while all these countries are there for, uh, for the COP, for the UN agreement, they're also on the side making these, these pledges uh, separate from the formal agreement. And so that's where we see a lot of the really exciting action. And I think a lot of that, a lot of that has to do with uh, COP is, it has to be, the final text has to be agreed on unanimously. So every single country signed on to Paris, that's almost 200 countries, all have to vote yes in order for this text to be adopted. That is really hard to move. So you have countries making these side agreements uh, mm -hmm. right on their own because those okay. don't have to be unanimous. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, still, uh, I am exceptionally excited um, about some of the same things you are. The, the deforestation one just popped out to me and I was like, wow. <laughs> I mean, that's still like, incredibly impactful. So uh, really incredible stuff. Um, Chris, I'd like to hop over to you for a second here. Um, you know, we're talking about uh, big uh, global um, sort of climate conversations, but also uh, several U.S. governors participated in this year's conference. So to bring things a little bit closer to home, um, what role did the U.S. governors play in the event? Yeah, you would think a big conference with big countries and the United Nations hosting that it would be uh, all about the federal level and all about what's happening in D.C. But honestly, it's a really big deal that so many governors, seven actually, their offices uh, were in direct attendance of uh, uh, the COP for the first time, and it was the biggest delegation, seven governors, uh, including representatives from a number of other offices as well. So there's a lot to be said about the need for these big agreements at the federal level, no doubt. That's always going to be true that we should have very good regulations at the federal level and funding supports and investments as well in order to make sure that those goals that Hannah mentioned are met. However, there's this completely other un, uh, this completely other subordinate level at the state and local level. When you've got states like California and uh, Oregon and Washington on the West Coast all agreeing to some of the boldest pledges to electrify their vehicle fleets and to build out infrastructure that's green and to uh, weatherize buildings and make them more resilient to disasters, there's so much that's going on at the state and local levels, and those governors really shined on the on the international level when they brought their uh, skills to COP. That's that's incredible. Um, and so, which states? I'm sorry, I know we have to break for commercial in just a, a minute here, but which states did you say were in attendance? So the governor's offices were from California, Hawaii, Illinois, Louisiana, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Nevada. New Mexico, New York, North Carolina, Oregon, Rhode Island, and Washington. So, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I did not mean to put you on the spot with that. That was not a pop quiz. I didn't realize it was quite so many. That's incredible. Um, and a real worries. diversity. Yeah, uh, Edwin is applauding in our, our chat here. <laughs> a real diversity of states there as well with way uh, very different needs. Um, okay, we're hitting our commercial break and we will be right back with the Generation Progress Takeover uh, after this message. I feel like I need a guitar. Sorry. Um, welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwin Theogene. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. We are, I was going to say, we're bringing you back, uh, rocking on, but really Mark. Uh, Mark gets all the all the cred. Um, or if you don't like the music, blame Mark, our producer. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so welcome back. Today we are talking about COP26, the infrastructure bill, Build Back Better, and we're joined by our two colleagues, Hannah Malice and Chris Chung. Welcome back, Hannah and Chris. Thank you. Thanks. Hello. So we were talking a little bit about COP26. Um, and you know, thank you, Hannah, for walking us through like what this conference is about and the meeting of all these really important people and Chris for sharing too that there was some state level um, involvement too. So I guess, Hannah, can you tell us like what were some of the, uh, at a high level, like what was the agreement reached? I know you talked about that there's actually a text that all the 200 countries are going to have to sign onto um, at the end of this and that certain countries were still making like commitments and pledges on the side, but like what's up with this agreement and where is the process on that? Sure. So the final agreement, um, it there was actually some criticism that it was watered down. Um, so again, it's still, it moves us in the right direction in that if all of the country's pledges and commitments are followed through, uh, then warming will still be limited um, by 2100, but not limited enough. And so um, I, I think a really telling example of, of this is um, there was a lot of controversy over uh, the drafted text mentioned um, that all countries would commit to phasing out coal. Uh, and so this would be like a huge deal, right? Like everyone like transitions off of coal and onto clean energy. Um, but some of the top polluting countries really pushed for that language to be softened. And so what ended up happening is that instead of phasing out coal, countries in the final text committed to phasing down coal. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this watered down language, it kind of happened because again, like this final text has to be agreed upon unanimously. And so, uh, you know, when countries were faced with the decision of, do we want softer language or do we want the entire thing to fall apart and we all leave with nothing uh, decided on, uh, they chose the, the softer language. Um, and so like the closing plenary was like really emotional. Uh, COP President Sharma was actually like reduced to tears over this piece of the final text. Um, but this is the first time that fossil fuels are mentioned at all in the final text. And so that's a win. And uh, it's really a win because of the, the activists that, that were present, I think, and also activism at home. Um, but, you know, I, I think there, there is some really valid criticism that the deal doesn't do enough to get away from fossil fuels. Yeah, it sounds pretty bittersweet. Um, as someone from home who was kind of like paying attention, I did see tons of protest and young people coming out in the streets and fighting against this. So it sounds like, yes, we've made some strides, but the, like you said, Hannah, there's still so much work that needs to happen. Um, so to, to take a step back and talk about some of the, the commitments that are happening stateside, are happening here in the US, um, and I'm just curious, so like we've signed this big uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, so turning towards that, Hannah, can you tell us, um, you know, uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill was signed into law by Biden on Monday, coming after months of negotiations back and forth. Uh, what does this bill mean for climate? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a really exciting bill. Um, I, I want to be clear that, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure bill it has a lot of amazing stuff in it, um, but it's it's not what we would call a climate bill. Um, so it's very much an infrastructure bill in like the traditional sense of roads and bridges and that kind of thing. 
Um, but there is uh, some really exciting stuff about pollution cleanup. Um, so, uh, for example, it has funding to electrify the transportation sector, uh, electrify school buses, curb pollution in ports, um, does some great stuff for lead pipe replacement, cleaning up water contamination, uh, cleaning up Superfund sites. Like these are all amazing priorities, right? Um, but when it's standing on its own, it actually doesn't reduce emissions, uh, like hardly at all. And so that's why we really need the, or the Build Back Better Act uh, to also pass. Because together, when these two bills are passed, we start to see the emission reductions that we need to avert climate change. Yeah, thank you for explaining that and clarifying. Um, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about what are some of the implications of uh, for states with both the infrastructure bill and maybe even Build Back Better, since um, Hannah also introduced that? Like, what are going to be some of the, the challenges of implementing this on the state level, and what are some things that you're excited to see? Yeah, well, the magnitude of this package, the combined infrastructure bill plus the reconciliation bill, it cannot be overstated, honestly. This is a massive amount of funding that is bigger than previous generations have seen. And a lot of the funding will, a lot of funding will go towards climate from the bipartisan, the Build Back Better, by, uh, Build Back Better agenda, rather. So clean energy tax incentives are a huge piece of that, making sure that when we deploy solar and wind energy turbines that those uh, tax incentives are valued at the right level and incentivize developers to actually participate and move us towards a 100% clean energy grid. That's a giant piece uh, that we are very excited to see deployed. Uh, more so not directly to the states, but actually to the developers of those clean energy projects themselves. At the state level, however, there is a lot of other funding buckets, such as a greenhouse gas reduction uh, fund of $5 billion that the EPA is going to be responsible for uh, doling out to not just state governments, but also municipalities as well. So for your listeners, even though I know that with COP, there was maybe a little bit of um, uh, cynicism or some disheartenment with the fact that it wasn't the biggest, boldest thing we could ask for and, and get to an agreement on, there really is a lot of opportunity out there. So hold on to that hope, because even if you're in a red state, for example, your city might might be on the cusp of qualifying for a lot of funding that will help to reduce greenhouse gas redu greenhouse gas emissions, help uh, remediate environmental justice communities that have been so slammed by a lot of pollution from the from the past, uh, and also electric vehicle uh, tax incentives and infrastructure building. That's in both parts of the bills. Um, there's going to be a lot that incentivizes people to switch to a 100% clean car that you don't need to go to the gas station anymore for. And I think that's a really awesome thing that people are excited for. And they're still working out the details with some senators who have an issue with the union provision of making sure that the cars are union made and rewarding that through our taxes. But the reality of that is uh, there's going to be a lot of more electric vehicles on the market for people to choose to. This is going to incentivize manufacturers to have better, newer offerings. And let me tell you, if you've never driven an electric car before, <laughs> you step on the accelerator and it just goes because there's instantaneous torque. So I'm excited for that piece personally myself. <laughs> That sounds super exciting. I love the, like, on the local level, you know, we've been talking about climate on a global level, at the federal level, and, like, it all becomes so much more real, like, at the state and local level, because politics are super local. So to show the direct impact of, like, what does it mean 
you know, that these decisions are being made. So that's really helpful. And it's great to hear that these bills have these like exciting provisions. Um, Hannah, are there other provisions that you're excited about? Yeah, uh, the Build Back Better Act is just really like, uh, I mean, once in a generation kind of opportunity for climate action. Um, and I think something, I mean, Chris did a great job at laying out everything that is possible, um, but also it commits $30 billion to the development of a civilian climate core, uh, which is really exciting. It would basically train a workforce, um, you know, especially targeting young people, I think, uh, to prepare for jobs in the clean energy economy. Um, and so I think that's a really exciting piece of it as well. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Were you going to say something, Charlotte? I thought I heard a noise. No, I think, uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, just amb ambient noise. Um, so, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say the climate core that you were talking about, Hannah, was a big thing that a lot of young activists pushed for. They pushed for Biden to commit to that um, while he was on the campaign trail. And to see that come into fruition is just really amazing to see that direct act impact of, like, youth activists. Um, so that's really exciting. I know we only have, like, a few more minutes here. Uh, but Chris, just wanted to check in if there's anything else you'd like to add about these two bills. What do you think would be the biggest thing that our audience should really take away from with this? Sorry, I'm going to hop in, Edwin. I actually oh, think actually we, we have a minute. Like, yeah. So I think uh, I think noodle on it, Chris. Think think big thoughts about how you would like to answer this question when we return from our commercial break um, and the biggest impact uh, that, that folks are going to um, be feeling in their day to day lives, because I think, as we've said, that's where it gets real. Um, and you've been listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Edwith and I will be right back with you in just a few minutes. Hello. Hi, welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwa Theogene. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. Yes, welcome back. Today we are talking about COP26, Build Back Better, and the infrastructure bill that was just signed into law on Monday. And we are joined by Chris Chung and Hannah Malice, both from Center for American Progress. Welcome back, Chris and Hannah. Thank you. Great. Um, so before we went off to commercial break, I asked Chris a very big question um, about, you know, if you had any thoughts or anything that you were particularly excited about um, in regards to the Build Back Better uh, and infrastructure package. Um, would you like to share? Yes, actually. I mean, with trillions of dollars being allocated, there's a lot to like. <laughs> but I'll just highlight a few of the things that really excite me. So for one, in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, there is funding allocated to remediate orphaned wells, and that funding is going to go directly towards the states. And for those who don't know, orphaned wells are legacy oil and gas wells that were drilled into the ground and were subsequently either abandoned or just people didn't know that they were there uh, and they're not producing enough oil to be profitable anymore. So we've got to plug those because they're leaking methane and they're unproductive and they're, that's going to mean more construction jobs and more funding to support union labor in some of these communities. There's resilience and transmission funding. So to protect us from our next big climate disasters, we're gonna make sure that our grid uh, doesn't go down. And the idea is to make that more efficient as well. And a lot of that funding is gonna be deployed to the states as well. 
as I had previously mentioned, I know this is a grab bag, so sorry if I'm uh, all over the place, but there, the EV infrastructure, as I had previously mentioned, is a really exciting piece uh, because that's going to motivate more people to buy some of these uh, cars that are coming out and use union labor and are really high tech and are going to clean uh, our communities as well. In addition to that, there's clean buses and clean ferries funding as well. So uh, for schools who want to convert their fleets over, if their school buses are aging, and especially in communities where kids are the most vulnerable, uh, where you want to make sure that that funding is put in place. And then uh, the last I'll say is the EJ Block Grants program, which the environmental justice community um, was really hoping to see and, and did get secured in the current version as we're still in negotiations. We can't say any of the Build Back Better Act is definitive at this point. However, we're confident that with the community and advocacy that work that surrounded the block grant program, that this money is going to go directly into the most vulnerable communities, usually communities of uh, majority color that are especially uh, exposed to pollution and heavy industry. And, you know, you can see that in your minds, how that how being able to remediate um, those uh, communities and the pollution effects that they felt is going to really have an important impact that I hope people will see over the next 10 years that this bill's enacted. So it's very exciting stuff. <laughs> That's Incredibly awesome. ex exciting. Yeah, sorry, go ahead, Edwith. Oh, no, I exactly what you said. <laughs> and then, you know, I was my my next question um, actually for for each of you um, is I, I feel like you covered so much there um, and already almost answered the question that I was going to ask. Um, I was going to say, like, is there anything else we should be talking about um, about the way these bills are going to impact people's day to day lives? Like, I love your example of the electric cars, the school buses, um, you know, sealing off uh, the the orphan um, oil wells so that uh, communities aren't having methane leaked into them. Um, I think, Hannah, you mentioned something about like lead pipe remediation. So I, I just feel like you've said so many. Th I, I, I know that these are the biggest um, the biggest bills that we've seen in a very long time that do um, so much good uh, in the, uh, you know, like particularly um in the energy and environment space. Um, but everything that you ticked off, it's just sort of like, I, I didn't even know about that thing. I didn't even know about that thing. Um, so I, I love uh, the highlights of how people are going to be directly impacted and like immediately impacted very soon. You know, agencies are going to start distributing these funds um, for states, municipalities, um, local governments, uh, like pretty, like very soon. So um, super exciting. Um, and I know we started this show um, talking a little bit about uh, COP26. And um, I, I just have like one follow up question for you, um, Hannah, to turn back to that conference real fast. Um, we, we mentioned at the top of the show that some young activists, including uh, Greta Thunberg, were critical of the amount of compromising that was done to reach the final agreement, um, which she thinks uh, is insufficient. And I, and I, I know that you said that um, there's there are lots of compromises that um, need to be made to get as many um, countries to sign on as possible. But can you share more about what these concerns were um, and what you think, um, you know, where we think we might be going for next steps on more aggressive climate action? Totally. Yeah. Greta Thunberg, um, Ugandan climate activist, Vanessa Nakate, uh, like there were so many incredible speakers and protesters, both inside the venue and outside, um, and really led by young people. Um, like that was the most impressive contingent of, of civil society was young people standing up and demanding action. Um, and so 
you know, I, I think their main criticism is that, and it's so valid, is that they pointed out that there is a huge gap between the rhetoric of our leaders, you know, them talking about what they're going to do and what is actually being done. And then there's even a bigger gap between what is being done and what science tells us needs to be done in order to avoid the worst impacts of the climate crisis. Um, and so, you know, pledges are not effective without action. And so, uh, you know, young people, I'm, I know, are going to continue to keep the pressure on our leaders and, and make sure that they follow through with, with concrete action. And again, like at home, it's passing the Build Back Better Act. Uh, that That is what needs to be done right now. Yeah, thanks, Hannah. And I had the pleasure, we had the pleasure of working with Vanessa Nakata a few months ago or maybe a year ago. So it's exciting that her leadership continues and so does Greta's. Um, so you talk about how young people are holding a lot of folks accountable with COP26 and having this great influence of what could be like the final agreement as well as, and thank you so much for bringing up the Build Back Better Act and the infrastructure bill, because that was going to be my next question of just like, how do you see, um, and this question could go to you too, Chris, like how do both of you see how young people are playing this critical role in some of these climate wins that we're seeing, right? Um, so uh, Hannah, I'll throw that to you first. And then Chris, if you want to chime in. Yes, I, I could wax poetic about the importance of advocacy and protesting forever, but I, I will keep it short. Um, I think Young people just need to make sure that, you know, your leaders are hearing from you. Uh, I think it's more important than ever, you know, as we're trying to pass this, this package, um, that our elected officials see not taking action on climate change as not only morally bankrupt, but probably more importantly, politically untenable. And so, you know, they have to have the sense of if I want to win this election, if I want to win re-election, I have to take action on climate, that that is non-negotiable. And I think, you know, being at COP, there was such this profound sense of, oh, like people are watching us because of the protests. And also, I think this, at least to me, this seems like the most widely reported on COP. You know, this is the 26th one. And I don't think anyone followed it as closely as they did, you know, just now. And, and that's because of the activism that we saw. And I'll add that young people are holding our leaders accountable and they need to continue to do that because the disastrous climate effects we're seeing today, whether it's the wildfires out west or severe flooding and the extreme weather, scientists say that's only going to get worse if we don't do anything about the climate crisis and if we don't act on an international fashion all the way from the presidency all the way to your local town council. So I can't stress enough that young people need to be getting on the phone and demanding meetings with their state legislators or governor's offices, their mayors or city councilors. Heck, even their school boards can get funding uh, to, to green some of their buildings and, and to make sure that they're at the, at the seat of the table in terms of the debate with climate change. So there's a whole lot that's going to be needed to be done, but I have faith that uh, young people will be able to help us steer out of this crisis. Totally. Leading the charge. Yeah, young people always leading the charge um, and appreciate y'all's recognition on that. We love, we love to see it. <laughs> um, well, I think we are just about at the end of our show. Um, you know, I've really appreciated um, hearing more from both of you, um, Hannah and Chris. I just want to make sure folks know real fast, uh, where can people go to learn more about you and your work, Hannah? Uh, I would encourage people to follow CAP Energy Policy uh, on Twitter. Um, also, we, uh, CAP just revamped our website, so check out AmericanProgress.org. And if you're interested in environmental justice, check out AJustClimate.org. Thanks. Great. And then Chris, 
Our website is AmericanProgress.org slash SHWH for State House to White House. And it looks a little dry, but trust me, there's interesting stuff in there. And please feel free to click on my name and email me if any questions come up. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. And also, Generation Progress is collecting uh, climate change stories. So if you have a climate change story, you should share that with us at GenProgress.org. Um, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much to our guests and our producer um, and to our communications manager, Emily Leach, and to all of our listeners. Uh, we'll be back with you next time on the Generation Progress takeover of The Leslie Marshall Show. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. 